All right. Well, we want to, this morning, celebrate Christ's coming by looking into a passage of Scripture that is much broader in scope than what we often associate with this event of Christ's birth. We often associate it with a very narrow time frame of maybe inclusive of the time of the disclosure of the coming pregnancy to Mary, uh, and maybe we conclude it, oh, perhaps we'll push it as far as even when he's 12 years old in the temple. Uh, and that's pretty much about it, although usually we don't even get to 12. Usually we get to his eight-day presentation at the temple um, and the two prophetic words that are given there. We have a very narrow concept of this time frame of Christ's birth and what we are celebrating. And really we don't find that in Scripture very consistently, the idea that we are going to isolate one event of Christ's life and celebrate it distinctly from the whole balance of his purpose and coming. And so we find that regularly in Scripture, even including in Matthew and Luke with the narrative of his uh, birth that's given to us, it is set in a context of why is this occurring. In Matthew, we have, and Luke both, we have the context of a, of a whole chronology of history. When we go through the uh, a look at the uh, genealogies of Christ, and we see uh, the uh, effort that is placed to talk about the kinsmen redeemers, and as they are evident in the history of Christ's uh, genealogical, uh, human genealogy. And uh, so we find that, and then they stretch very quickly, uh, through the narrative of his birth to get into his, his uh, ministry and the purpose of his coming. And that's why we have such little um, information, at least, uh, and, and little uh, interest, it seems like, in the Gospels, in his youth, in, his, in the growing up period, other than to say he grew up. And uh, we don't find a large, extensive description of that time. And so his birth and that narrative was very quickly linked, uh, almost immediately, right into his ministry. And so from the historical side, looking at the genealogy into the ministry side of his coming, this is the context of the narrative of Christ's birth. And this morning we want to take another look at that. Again, focusing in on a portion of Scripture that we are often only associate one or two verses with Christ's coming. But it's set in the context of a much broader scope of the purpose and working of God in the world. And we are going to be looking at Micah chapter 5, as we've already read this morning, uh, the entirety of that chapter. Uh, we want to look at really verse 2, but we want to look at it really not even in just the context of all chapter 5. Um, you're going to see some portions of that. You're going to say, this has something to do with Christmas. It just talks about killing Assyrians. Um, but it does, as we're going to see. Um, and not just chapter 5, but we want to look even beyond that to the entirety of the book of Micah and the presentation of who is this one to be born in Bethlehem? What is he there to accomplish? And what is he in response to? And all of this really brings a crystallization to what we are celebrating. That this isn't about gift giving. This is about the gift given. And the reason it had to be given and the purpose for that it was intended to accomplish in our lives by its giving. And so we come to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and we understand this is one of the important prophecies that tell us exactly where to look for Christ's birth. This is likely the passage of Scripture that the 
uh, knowledgeable men of Jerusalem went to when the Magi came and said, where is he who is to be born king of the Jews? And they knew where to send him. They said, oh, well, head down to Bethlehem. How did they know that? Well, it's written in their book, the Hebrew book, uh, right here in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And so this was not an unknown secret passage to the Jews. They were familiar with it, and they knew what it involved. And so what is the statement here about Bethlehem? It talks about its littleness. Why? Why? Of all the things that talk about Bethlehem Ephrathah, why its littleness is emphasized. And we want to look at really the book of Micah to discern that. In Micah, we have uh, a prophet of God dealing over the course of three kings' reigns. And these kings will vary from a wicked king to a very godly king who makes dumb mistakes. Um, If there's any king I probably associate with most, it's Hezekiah. We try to be godly, but we make stupid mistakes along the way. Um, And he is that kind of a person. Um, And so we find that Micah had the whole breadth of, of leadership over him that he was ministering in. Uh, of course, the concern during this time period of the divided kingdom uh, uh, was the Assyrians who were going to take out Israel and did during the time of Micah's prophesying. They are going to come and envelop Jerusalem, uh, which occurred. Uh, and so they're concerned about the Assyrians. But ultimately, for Judah, the Assyrians weren't the real problem. And so we're going to have uh, cities like Babylon described as well as Nineveh. The focus has been upon Jerusalem, upon the, uh, the major cities of the southwest portion of Israel. And so we have Micah dealing with these major things going on. Uh, and if we were to look at that, we'd say, well, if in our newspaper, we would call this the world news section uh, and national news. And so we've got this big, big picture. And we have the listing of, of cities and, and all of this going on in chapters 1. And uh, we see the the description of the inhabitants and always focus on capital cities or regionally large cities. Because that's where things are happening. That's where everything's occurring and that's where the big news is and that's where the attention is given. Uh, He then goes in and talks about the sin that he sees around him in Judah, in Israel. Uh, And he identifies them and they are, are wicked. They are harsh. He talks about uh, children being sacrificed uh, to uh, Baals and to Molech. He talks about the hideous treatment of other Israelites by Israelites. Uh, the focus isn't upon the sin of the world out there, but the sin of God's people and how hideous it had become. That there had been an abuse of uh, the poor, abuse of the uh, maimed and injured, the, the, the oppression of people to robbing people of their inheritances. Um, and so we find the use of, of these really banking things that we use predominantly today to, to rob people of all that was given to them and guaranteed them by the law. We come into this description of sin and we would expect that Micah has a great following of people that are going to agree with him. But instead we find uh, the people have propped up a whole host of false prophets. These false prophets have done great injury because they have told the people, no worries from God on any of what's going on in our country. Yes, Assyria is getting stronger and Babylon 
Um, they didn't even see Babylon in behind Syria. Uh, it was too early for that, really, for them to even envision that occurring. They said, don't worry, God is for us, we're his people, he's stronger than all of them, we have nothing to concern ourselves with, we are safe. We are safe. You are held in the hollow of God's hand and you are a-okay. You just keep tooling along, doing things just as you are, um, and don't worry about these people who are, who are just talking craziness about the Assyrians or the Babylonians or anyone else, for that matter, uh, coming against us and destroying us. Because it just won't happen. Because you're God's people. And none of that can happen to you. And it doesn't really matter how you live your life. You're just called God's people. And this is what the false prophets were telling Israel. And because of this message, they decided they really didn't have anything to worry about. And they could ignore guys like Micah. And there were a few others there around uh, during this time frame. And uh, he wasn't the only prophet speaking, but there were very few, a handful at best. And so they determined they could ignore them. And so God sends his condemnation upon the false prophets as well. And so we find here the Gentile nations and their, and their rising to power and the jeopardy that it put Jerusalem in, not because of their power, but because of the powerlessness of their religion. Because the religion was without righteousness. Religion without righteousness is displeasing to God. It only angers Him. It only builds His wrath against you. And so we find that uh, the people are put to sleep, if you will, by the false teachers. Rather than being attuned to the necessity of righteousness in their religion, they simply carry on with this empty belief that God's for us, no one can harm us. And so in the midst of all talking about countries and nations and international politics, we come into a very powerful portion of Scripture that we just concluded with in chapter 4, talking about, well, is that the end? We have the nations, we have the sin, so we obviously see some wrath. We have false teachers. Is that... Is this just going to be the culmination? Is God just done with us? And Micah interjects a very important message, and that message is about the distant future of Israel. What is God's ultimate plan for her? And again, this is a very powerful and expansive passage of Scripture, or this is many of the verses we glean out of chapter 4 of Micah, talking about, the millennial kingdom. What is it going to be like? And, and we would read these and, and we would say, yes, that's when they're going to uh, have swords beaten into plowshares and, and spears into pruning hooks and, and nation will not raise up sword against nation and no one's going to learn war anymore and, and we're going to have lions laying down with lambs and we're going to have uh, the word of God uh, being served there. And we have this wonderful, expansive communication again that's involving not just Israel and Jerusalem but the nations that God has a plan God has a plan for you as a country God has a plan for you as a people God has a plan for this world and he is going to invoke and and work that plan and so in the midst of all of this international working of God we have the interjection that it all boils down to something that happens in this little itty bitty place that is of no other consequence. None. There is no other consequence to Bethlehem. 
at this point. And in fact, as we get uh, into the later time of Jeremiah, we're going to find the house of David is going to be in absolute turmoil. So, well, David was born in Bethlehem. And so that's where the origin of this is. So Bethlehem was of some consequence, but the house of David is going to be diminished to a very small group of people in terms of those that could lead Israel, uh, particularly after the Babylonians were done with them. And so we're going to find Jeremiah trying to uh, preserve that line very carefully uh, through some interventions and by uh, hiding some people uh, in that line. But we're going to find that Bethlehem really wasn't of any consequence to Israel. It wasn't, it did not have any military value, had, had very little commercial value to Israel. Its only claim to fame is this is where the hometown of David. It would be comparing the international politics of today and saying it all boiled down to this little place up in the mountains of New Mexico called Los Alamos. Just a little insignificant place, right? I mean, think about it. It wasn't even a place until it became significant. I mean, the government built the place overnight almost. You would have us believe anyway. Um, It just cropped right out and suddenly it had a global impact. Well, prophetically... This overwhelms that. This account of Bethlehem overwhelms even the I, the concept of this little place up in the mountain, northern mountains of New Mexico that are going to change and impact the world. This is going to impact the world not just from now on, but from history past, present, and future into eternity. And this is the context that Micah drops this name. He just drops it in there. Bethlehem Ephrathah. And all of this activity from the historical condition of Israel into the movement of empires all over the planet to the future empire of Jesus Christ that's going to go on for a thousand years, that all the nations that are going to be stirred and moved, that God is 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 invoking and employing and judging and, and dealing with, it all boils down to this one little place. And it's not Jerusalem. It's not... Uh, it's not the, the big capital cities. It's not the centers of commerce or politics or, or industries. It's none of that. It comes down to this little pastoral village. It says, You, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one. And it comes down to this one. And Micah has been introducing this one on several occasions already. He has come as the one that we are anticipating and we want to look at the one because it's not Bethlehem that becomes something to be elevated. That is the the little place. It's a little insignificant burg out there and those that are pretty sure that if, well, if I could go to Bethlehem and that's the place to celebrate Christmas, uh, well, Bethlehem is pretty much a Muslim town at this point. It's under Palestinian control. It's just, I don't know... It's just romantic notions there that somehow you're going to be closer to celebrating Christ's birth if you're in Bethlehem. Um, that doesn't mean there's not value to visiting and to seeing those. I think there was when we went. Um, but in terms of the association, it is not necessarily this place that's being elevated here. It's saying that of all the places we're going to look, we're not going to look in these movements of, of 
empires and of emperors and, and kings and uh, the, the normal places you would look for for this one. You're going to look for a place of absolute humility, a humble place, and even the humblest place in the humble place is where you're going to look, we find out later on, thanks to the angelic visit to the shepherds. Where do we look? Well, you look in the humblest place in the humblest little town of Judah. You go to Bethlehem and find him in a manger. Not in a bed, not in a palace, not in an upper room even, but in a, in a manger area. So we find that it's this one that's really the focus of Micah. Not the little town, but the one who is to be born in the little town. And so this one becomes a key character here for Micah, and that keyness is, is vital to our celebration this week of Christ's coming. We know who the one is. We know this is Jesus Christ. But I want to rehearse for you a little bit of how Micah views this one. First of all, he views him as the judge. The judge of Israel. The judge of the nations. Now, our first perspective of Jesus, this period of time of celebrating His coming, is Jesus the Savior. But in the prophetic word, Jesus doesn't first come as a Savior, but as a judge. And if you recall, several weeks ago in the Gospel of Luke, we looked at Christ's own declaration of, why have I come? And his statement seems to be in contradiction to even statements in Micah and statements that the angels made. I've not come to bring peace on the earth, but division. I've come to, to bring this, this friction between men. You see, the peace that's talked about here in Micah, we're going to see in a little bit, and the peace that the angels talk about wasn't between men, but between Men and God. And when men enter into a right relationship with God, something's going to happen to their relationships with other men. There's going to become friction. For we will now redefine ourselves, not by our, uh, our last name, not by our economic standing, not by our ethnic group, but we redefine ourselves now under the personage of Jesus Christ. And that's going to bring friction. Imagine that. Your family is going to be a little upset that the most important thing to you is not the family name or those old traditions that had nothing staked in Scripture. Imagine that, that your uh, friends and that your co-worker, that, that, that those of your class, whether it be your ethnic group or your uh, economic social group, um, suddenly you have other interests. You have something more important than that relationship in your life. And that's going to bring that friction that Christ talks about. And we find here a very careful um, distinction of what kind of peace it is that Jesus Christ brings. That peace is between God and men. And so Christ's declared purpose was, I've come to bring division between men. And what separates men from men isn't poverty or wealth. It isn't taxes. It isn't about land. It isn't about liberties. It's about Jesus Christ. Are you His? Are you His servant, His slave, His child, His, his uh, brother? His, his, are you in that relationship? Or are you His enemy? For there is no other one. There is no middle ground. There is no alternative. 
These are the two camps. And we who understand it recognize the division that occurs from that. And Mike understood this. And so he understands Christ's coming as his judge, first of all. And, and so in the context of Israel's sin, he says, listen, you're going to have to answer to the one. The one is going to come. And he's going to come as judge of all the earth, not just of Israel, but of all the nations. They're going to have to come to him and he will be the lawgiver. He will be the judge, jury, and executioner even. He is the one in which all that authority lies. He is the one that all men must answer to. He is the judge. At the beginning of chapter 5, we have him introduced as just that. Chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. Now, kind of a weird statement to make in a weird place. He's just got finished talking about the millennial kingdom of Christ's reign and rule. Why now all of a sudden he's going to talk about the judge being struck on the face. And then the very next verse he's going to talk about the one who's going to be born, where he's going to be born. Another little reminder, prophets weren't very concerned about chronology. They didn't care about saying things in the right order. And so we find the culmination of the kingdom presented where God is the judge and the deliverer from sin. He is a deliverer. I don't negate that. We're going to focus on that here in a minute. But he first comes as the judge of all the nations. And he will conclude that thousand years as the judge of all the nations. Even though the nations are going to rise up against him. But here, tucked in here, is this little statement that in the course of this, this judge is going to be stricken. And this correlates very closely with Isaiah's presentation of the Christ. Here's the Christ. Here, here's his, his names. He is wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the Son. And then what do we find very closely following that is he is going to be stricken, abused, beaten, despised, and rejected, that this is the one. And so we find here Micah similarly saying, this one who is going to be uh, the judge and the deliverer, he's going to endure something. He's going to have uh, his face strict, struck with a rod. He's going to be beaten in his face. And we go to the Gospels, and of course we can immediately identify those times that this did in fact happen. And it happened not at the hands of his own people, as well as at the hands of the nations. That he was beaten not only by the Roman soldiers, but we understand that that was also something he endured from his own in the Sanhedrin. So the judge of all Israel and of really all the world is going to be stricken with a rod on the cheek. Here's the one who has the power and the authority to convict and condemn every one of them and they are striking at him. Now ultimately this fulfillment is in the end of the millennial kingdom when they will rise up against the one who has judged and delivered them for a thousand years of peace and will strike back at him. But we find that the ultimate fulfillment of that will be in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we go to this small, humble place, and we're looking for the one, who first of all, we find out, is going to be the judge of all the nations. 
But that doesn't mean he's going to come as a judge, but rather he comes as a condition of such humility that he allows those who he is about to judge to strike him, to do him injury. And we suddenly realize there's something unique about this individual. There's something that, that doesn't correlate with what we associate um, this high one with uh, compared to the Scripture that describes the, his treatment as someone who is very low and abused. So we come again and we look. The one comes as judge. He comes also as ruler. It says in verse 2, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. So he's come as judge. He's also come as ruler. This ruler, he has already introduced what he's going to do. He is going to rule the world. And what a wonderful time this is going to be. No war. Imagine that. No war. He is going to have all nations subject to him. And, of course, Revelation describes that he is going to come. The one who is beaten in his face with a rod is going to come with a rod. Isn't that fascinating? The description of Christ coming to reign on the earth is with a rod. And so the one who allowed the ones who he is going to rule to humiliate him and subject, subject him to this kind of injury is one who's going to come with great power and with a rod of ultimate power, ultimate authority, ultimate judgment. And so he's going to come as judge. He's going to come as the ruler, the one who will rule his people. This little town of Bethlehem, this little insignificant place is where we're going to go to find this one who's going to do this international work. Not only for his lifetime, well, actually, yes, for his lifetime, um, for not only the time he's on earth, but for all eternity, this one. So we come. What else is he fear for? Why else has he come? We follow along and we find that he is not only the judge, and the ruler is the shepherd. All this in this little place that we only associate this verse with where he was born. But oh, it says so much more about our Savior, about the one to be born there. We find that he is there to be a shepherd. It says in verse 4, He shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They shall abide and he shall be great to the ends of the earth. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. We find him coming to shepherd his people. This one didn't come into existence at Bethlehem, but rather it says he was from everlasting of old. He came to shepherd his people. And again, he comes to gather that flock, to gather these ones that he will care for. These ones, and this motif from Micah has been a very powerful one throughout the book. It will continue to be. He has talked about the necessity of a of the sheep being put into a fold in the restoration of Israel, uh, being pastured, that they might have sufficient provision. Um, he's also been talking about the strong tower that would be uh, the the um, field tower. That is the the watch tower that would be in the area of the pasture that they would use to watch the sheep. And so we often think the shepherd was sitting on a little pile of rocks, but usually they had a formal tower built that where they would commonly uh, take their sheep and they would observe from there. They could see out quite a ways and give protection. So he talks about this stronghold. All of these pictures relate to Christ throughout Micah. 
that he ultimately forms this role as the great shepherd. That he will do it in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and uh, he'll be great to the ends of the earth. So he will shepherd not only Israel, certainly that's the focal point here for Micah, but he will be a shepherd for all men to the ends of the earth, the ends of time as well as the ends of space. He will shepherd his flock. And so he comes as judge, comes as ruler, comes as shepherd. This one who was from of old, from everlasting, who will reign eternally in the everlasting future with great might and glory, comes to this little insignificant place called Bethlehem. Comes with such abject humility about his person that he even goes to the point of allowing those whom he is going to judge to physically abuse him. And so from his birth connected to his suffering death, Micah wraps them all together in just four or five verses here. Well, we're not done. He's judge. He's ruler or king. He is shepherd. He is also, verse 5, and this one shall be peace. We have a very unfortunate verse division there. I'm not sure why the verse division is there and not at the end of this statement. But, and he shall be peace. Now, you just said he's going to be judged. He's going to bring, yes, but he's going to be the one to bring peace. The opportunity for peace between God and men. He is the ultimate peacemaker. And so we find again in the turmoil of Micah's world where there is gross sin going on in his society. And, and it's not even illegal sin. Understand that. What Micah was dealing with was gross approved sin. Sound familiar? Feel like you live in that kind of a world? I do. That our sin isn't even called sin anymore. It's just, uh, you know, maybe if you do it to the nth degree, you might be called, you have a disease. But um, the things that lead to your disease are never sin. Isn't that amazing? I often wonder about that. If it's wrong to, to a, a larger extent, why isn't it wrong in a smaller extent? But our world has so twisted things that that's where it comes. And so we come to... Uh, our world, like Micah's world, and we look around and then we look at the approved sin that's out there and we, and we see the, the movement of the nations and the wars that are, and, and, the, and the messiness, if you will, of this world. And we recognize there's no peace. And not only is there not peace on, on the grander scale, but then we look inside. Let's look, let's stop looking at the large scale. Let's look at the, personal scale. And we begin to investigate people's lives and hearts and minds and we start having conversations and we invest ourselves and we find out there's no peace inside of men either. And maybe that's why there's no peace in society or internationally or anywhere else because there's no peace here. We've just got done in chapter 4 dealing of Micah with a powerful description of the kind of contentment that Christ is going to bring when he reigns and rules and judges and shepherds. 
It says everyone's going to sit underneath their own fig tree and their own vineyard and be happy for a thousand years. You're not going to have to go try to steal somebody else's figs. You're not going to try to sit in their vineyard. You're not going to go after their stuff. You're going to have, you're going to be in your own little place. Um, let's see, that's in chapter four, verse four, and you're not going to be afraid. Why? Because the Lord of hosts has spoken. See, when Christ comes, he brings peace. Real peace. A peace between a man and himself and his God. And once that becomes universal in scope, once that is imposed upon men um, and Satan is removed from the equation, um, we find that for this period of time, the millennial kingdom, that men will truly have that kind of peace. That not only will it be uh, within and internationally, it'll even be in the animal kingdom. I mean, it'll be, it'll be enveloping this world, this kind of peace that is a picture or type of that peace that we should all have with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the one who first comes to judge, rule, shepherd, brings peace. Now, I want to share with you what Micah has just done in these handful of verses. He just walked you through the plan of salvation. And I would contend the order that you need to understand this person, Jesus Christ, you're going to celebrate his birth. You need to understand, first of all, if you're going to get a right relationship with God, he's coming as your judge. This child that we want to keep in a manger <laughs> is our judge and the judge of all the earth. Until we recognize that, that there is something inherently evil with in us, and that we are participants in the evil of society. And when we start, when we, we start listening to the true prophets of God, who are not going to say it's okay because you celebrate Christmas, therefore you're a Christian, therefore you're one of God's people, therefore you're all right. God won't judge you. And that is the evil that is being perpetrated today in too many places this hour. Places called churches. You're okay because you're here and you want to celebrate Christmas or you're going to come to New Year's Eve or Christmas Eve service. Yeah, we forget about it by New Year's Eve. Um, it's off the table by then. Um, that's next week's message. Never mind. Um, <laughs> oh, the hideousness of that false prophecy. That false speech. To say that somehow if you can celebrate Christmas, you're a Christian. Um, did you hear this week about the most expensive Christmas tree in the world? Where it's at? Abu Dhabi. It's in a Muslim country. Yeah. Muslim country. 40 foot, 60 foot, 60 foot tall Christmas tree adorned with gold watches and diamond necklaces. Figure that one out. So I guess they must be okay because they're celebrating Christmas and they're putting their money where their mouth is or at least where their Christmas tree is. So they're okay. Right? You see how ludicrous it is? And yet this is what false prophets are saying. We're not presenting Christ as the judge this week, are we? 
And yet, there are people going to be in church today and throughout this week who are going to be thinking about Jesus, whoever that guy is, and that baby, and you know that Mary and Joseph thing. And they're going to be going walking around in these uh, La Posadas, and they're going to Las Posadas. Uh, Got to do it plural. Um, and they're going to be participating in all this activity and never comprehending apparently that God is the judge of all the earth and that He is against their sin and that He will punish them for it if they do not repent and turn to Him and bow the knee at Him, not just physically, but in their heart and in their lives that they might repent. And so they have to recognize Him. And instead of recognizing Him as judge and surrendering themselves to Him as such and being repentive, they are just as truly as they did 2,000 years ago, striking Him in the face with their own sin. I don't need to repent. And repentance isn't part of Christmas story. Because they had divorced this one and they narrowed the scope down to this very little bit. And the prophets don't do it. They understand his role. And we understand this is the message that we need to be communicating. This one that we're celebrating his birth is the judge of all the world. He is my judge and yours. You will have to answer to him, this Holy One of Israel. And so until men recognize their sin and recognize that there's a righteousness of God that needs to be addressed, that they'll be judged. And this is part of the Holy Spirit's work, right? He'll convict the world of what? Of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. This is the first step in moving towards salvation, is seeing Him as judge. Then we see Him as Ruler, you might say we have to have him as ruler. Um, and we have been kind of mixed up, I think, a little bit in this, that we have a whole group out there saying you need to accept Christ as your Savior. Then later on, you'll accept him as your Lord, Master, Ruler, King. And I'll contend with you that if he is not the ruler from everlasting to everlasting, you have no Savior at all. Do you see the text here? I know you guys thought I kind of glossed over the end of verse 2. His goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. And that's because I want to insert it here. If you don't recognize who this person is, Jesus Christ, for who He really is, not a baby, not some magical potion on a crucifix that you can carry around and keep you from vampires or something, um, but that you recognize that He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. That He is the One who is God. And yes, it is a necessary, absolutely necessary understanding to come to Christ. If He is not God, there is no sense believing in Him. He can provide you no salvation. The idea that we introduce people to a Savior who is less than the ruler and King of kings and Lord of lords, and somehow after they quote-unquote get saved, down the road of peace, they will surrender themselves to Him and make Him Lord of their life is absurd. He must be Lord first or He cannot save you. He cannot be the Savior if He is not first the Lord. And I think it is purposeful that in the New Testament we will find His full title, Lord Jesus Christ. Not Christ, Jesus Lord. 
I know, sometimes it says Christ Jesus, the Lord. That is a designation. But the most common usage is Lord Jesus Christ. For He must be your Lord. If He wasn't the Lord, if He wasn't from everlasting to everlasting, He wasn't the ruler of all that exists, He cannot become your Savior. He cannot be that. If you do not recognize that He is the King of kings, that He is the one from of old, that He is God Almighty, then there is no sense believing in what He has done, for He is no different than any other man. And in fact, you must contend, as has been said by others, many others, He is either a liar or a lunatic. If you don't recognize that He is God. And so we begin presenting Jesus, the judge, Oh, you know the baby? No, the judge. You mean the, the guy who came to die for it? No, the judge of all the earth, of your sin. You see where we just put the attention? You mean the baby? No, the king. The king. That's the one you're worshiping. The king. You know, the one you have to answer to because he has all authority. He is God. He is from everlasting. He's from of old. He is the one. Then, then, he gathers the remnant. And he'll stand and feed his... Then he comes as the shepherd. The one who will give his life for the sheep. Then he comes as the deliverer. Then we can understand his role and just what it means for him to have humbled himself and come to a little lousy place called Bethlehem, the capital of nothing. Um... (laughs) tucked away just south of Jerusalem there where all the real stuff happens, comes with such a spirit upon him that even though he is judge, ruler, and even shepherd in peace, he allows men to strike him in the face with a rod. He comes as our shepherd. He comes to save us, to care for us. This one, And now we're ready to receive Him as such. Why? Because we've understood His judgeship. And therefore, I need to be sorrowful about my sin. I need to deal with it. I need to recognize it. I need to repent of it. I recognize Him as Lord. I recognize that He is the authority. That when He says this is the only way to heaven, I have no right to argue. For He is the Lord and the King. And therefore, what He says must be. And so now I come to Him and I am shaking. Yes, I'm shaking. I am fearful when I come to this child's cradle. And if you don't think there was fear in those shepherds, you haven't read the text very well. You don't think there was some fearfulness in those magi when they came? You haven't read the text very well. They humbled themselves there for they understood this was the king. This was the judge. And to some degree, He'll be our shepherd. He'll be the one who will give his life for the sheep. And now we can receive him as that. You see, to come to Jesus at the shepherd stage or at the peace stage without recognizing his judgeship and rulership is really to strike him and to strike him down. He he cannot fulfill these roles until these roles are acknowledged. Now he can be your savior. Once you understand, he's already the ruler of all the earth and the judge. 
Whether you receive him or not, these two stand. Understand that. The final two that we looked at, maybe, maybe not. But these first two are sure. He is the judge. He will judge you. And he is the king. He will reign over you. The question now is, will he shepherd you? And now, instead of talking about the nations and the world and from everlasting to everlasting, here's what we talk about, the remnant. We come to verse 3 and it says, he said, who are we concerned about? It says, the time has come, he's given birth. And it says, the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. He's now the shepherd, but he's not shepherd over the nations. He's not shepherd over from everlasting to everlasting. He's shepherd for the remnant in its time. Wow. You see, he will be ruler and judge over all for all time. Shepherd for the remnant in their time. In their time. You see, not all men will have Christ as their shepherd. Only the remnant. The remnant isn't the majority. We all understand that word, right? The remnant is the leftover. The remnant is the the uh, uh, a small percentage of the whole, they will have him as shepherd. And in their time, there is a season of deliverance. And that season's limited. It's not from everlasting to everlasting. There's a season of deliverance. And that season is now. And so thus, men are called upon to accept Christ as their Savior, and no longer is it necessary for Him to be their Savior. They need Him. That need is there. But it's not necessitated upon them to receive Him as Savior. Only a remnant. In this time. And it is those who receive Him as Savior. And this is very important to understand in verse 5. This one shall be peace. And that peace predicated upon, dependent upon him being your shepherd. For therein is peace. Peace with God comes down to a decision. Your decision. Am I going to humble myself before the judge of all the earth and the ruler of all nations and make him my shepherd and then have his peace? Isn't it sad how we've missed so much of this context by only knowing what verse 2 says and only saying this is just a proof text of where a prophecy of where Christ was born? We have a very powerful message in these four titles of Christ in this passage. As judge, as ruler, as shepherd, and as peace. And this needs to direct our worship this week. And I don't mean this service. I mean your worship, which is your life if you're a Christian. Your worship this week of Christ's coming needs to recognize Him. He is my judge and the judge of all the world and all the nations of all time. He is the ruler from everlasting to everlasting. And He is my shepherd. He came to be my shepherd. And in that relationship with Him, I'll have peace with God. Peace within. 
And I am called, therefore, to live at peace with all men. This is the full context of this very precious prophecy. And I want to mix in the single last element, the element that I really started with, and that is the humility of it all. God humbled himself, became a servant, which led to a cross where he allowed himself to be abused and mistreated for you and for I. He lowered himself again and again and again to be our peace, to be our shepherd. So we come and we look for the judge of all the world. We look of the ruler of all time and we come to this little town of no other significance. And suddenly, 2,000 years later, it's still of tremendous significance. Not because of who lives there today. Not because it has any influence politically, economically, even to this day. It's still kind of insignificant. But the one was born there. The one. Oh, that you might remember the one this week. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for the power of your prophetic word. And we thank you for making it known to us today. And we recognize we are now called upon to respond to it. We can strike you with it and run. Or we can kneel before you, offer all that we have, everything precious to us. Lay it before you and receive your shepherding, your feeding, your watch care, your peace. Lord, our prayer is that we might be of the second kind. And that it might be evident to all those around us and that we might draw them by this very message Come to know you as Savior and Lord, that you might be their shepherd, that they might have your peace. And Lord, that that might be upon our lips and our lives as among the highest priorities to our existence here and to your coming. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.